Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Face-to-face, President Trump wants to meet the whistleblower as impeachment calls intensify. Nothing's forever. Teenage clothing brand Forever 21 filing for bankruptcy. And a Starship Enterprise. Elon Musk unveils the rocket he says will fly to Mars. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome back to the show. We are back in action and rocketing towards the final quarter of the year. Yes, it's the last trading day of the month, the last trading day of the quarter. Two, no shortage, though, of twists and turns as far as the news flow is concerned, whether it's US-China or the impeachment crisis here in the United States over in D.C. On the bright side, though, U.S. stock futures are higher at this moment. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing right now. Helped along, I think, today by a statement over the weekend from the U.S. Treasury saying that it isn't considering restricting Chinese firms who want to list on U.S. stock exchanges. Pete Navarro, trade advisor to the White House, went one step further on air this morning on the competitor network, said it's all fake news. I tell you what, though, U.S. stocks did come under pressure on Friday. The Nasdaq losing some 1% as a result of these reports. U.S. listings of big Chinese companies like Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu, all coming under pressure. They're recovering here pre-market too. And I think overall this helped sentiment in Asia as well. Let me give you a sense of why I think there was nervousness here. There are roughly 160 Chinese firms listed on the major three U.S. stock markets. So we're talking $1.2 trillion worth of assets, perhaps even more. It's easy to understand why there was some nervousness here. Look, we'll get more insight later on in the show, but I think the big takeaway for me here is this isn't happening anytime soon. Beijing also warned that the de- de- decoupling of the two economies, the U.S. and China here, would be bad for everyone. I have to agree. What a backdrop, though for the trade talks that's set to resume next week. For now, a brief respite. Chinese markets are closed for the next seven days, marking National Day and 70 years since the founding of the People's Republic. Perhaps some respite for Trump as well here on the trade war front, at least. Plenty, though, to distract him at home. The impeachment inquiry is where we begin the drivers, so uh, let's get to it. President Trump ramping up attacks on the whistleblower here. The president demanding to meet his accuser. He says incorrect information was passed to that person and illegally. Meanwhile, the whistleblower's lawyer has serious concerns about clients, about their clients' safety. Suzanne Malvo joins us now. Suzanne, fantastic to have you with us. Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, saying that the whistleblower will appear before U.S. Congress. What more do we know about this and when perhaps? Sure, Julia. Well, the the investigation is really going at lightning speed here. What you have is the House and the Senate on recess, but certainly the House Intelligence Committee is working in earnest to make this happen and happen as quickly as possible. There was a conference call with the Speaker Pelosi and the Democratic Caucus over the weekend just yesterday, uh, sharing what the plan is going to be, urging her members uh, not to be partisan or political. She says this is not about whether or not you like Trump, but it is about the Constitution. So Chairman Adam Schiff of the Intelligence Committee essentially saying that these hearings will begin this week. 
and one of the deals that they are still negotiating, working on a tentative negotiation with the whistleblower to go before the committee on some conditions here that that whistleblower is protected, their identity as well as their safety. Lawyers for the whistleblower sent a letter to both the chair of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees saying that they were concerned about the safety of the whistleblower because of statements, tweets coming from the president over the weekend saying that he wanted to meet face to face, uh, that there would be repercussions. They also said there was a $50,000 bounty on the head of the whistleblower for the whistleblower's identity. So you can imagine uh, those talks still ongoing uh, to make sure that that person is, uh, is, is safe in participating in this. Also, what we're expecting from Chairman Schiff, uh, possible subpoena for documents uh, for Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, uh, very much in, they believe involved in this, as well as um, over the weekend. Uh, they, they also said that they were going to be taking a look at the former U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine for testimony, as well as the special envoy to the Ukraine, who just recently resigned, and the Intelligence Committee's inspector general, who was the one who said that the whistleblower's complaint was urgent and credible. All of this beginning this week, Julia. Yeah, it's so complicated, but to your point as well, for anyone wanting to raise their hand here and say there's things going on that I'm worried about, fears around the safety of the whistleblower, I think front and center here. Very quickly, Suzanne, for an international viewer that's looking at this, do we need to illustrate the point that even if we see impeachment in the House, there are not the numbers to impeach President Trump at this moment in the Senate? So whatever happens, he will remain unless... Republican senators shift their position here. That's right, Julia. I mean, when you look at the numbers here, you, you have the House, which can certainly impeach the president. Uh, it just takes a simple majority, the Democrats in charge, but the Republicans in charge of the Senate, they would go through the trial and actually remove the president. Uh, you would need all the Democrats, the independents, and at least 20 Republicans to make that happen. And that would be a huge shift in the Senate to actually remove him from office. And so what you're looking at here are Democrats who are saying a couple things. Uh, the leadership saying it is their constitutional duty to move forward with impeachment, articles of impeachment, even if he's not removed in the Senate. There are some other Democrats who are looking at it, certainly at the political side of this, saying that, look, at the very least, by going through this exercise, they will convince voters and show the American people that uh, he is unfit for office and potentially that he would not win uh, the 2020 race, that they would demonstrate yeah. that uh, through this process. And so that is really what you're looking at. And the risk is that it becomes just a huge distraction here. Suzanne, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for uh, joining First Move this Thank morning. You. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Nothing lasts forever, it seems. Fast fashion retailer Forever 21 filing for bankruptcy. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Another victim, it seems, to intense competition and the shift to e-commerce here. But Claire, just explain what Forever 21 is and where they operate and, and what we've seen as a result of this filing. Yeah, Julia, this is a uh, fast fashion retailer, really caters to kind of uh, teenagers and early 20s, very cheap clothing and, uh, and a couple of issues that affect uh, Forever 21, which has made the shift in the retail industry even more acutely felt by them. I don't know when the last time uh, is that you've been to a Forever 21 store, but they are huge. According to their website, the average size is 38,000 square foot, which is really more akin to the size of a supermarket than a, than a clothes retailer. And this is part of the problem for them. Their stores uh, are enormous. They've been expanding since 
the financial crisis, just as other retailers were starting to, to kind of downsize their physical footprint and shift more uh, to online. This has made the crisis uh, with, with being able to pay their rents more acute as sales uh, have been slowing. And they're also, uh, you know, kind of at the, the wrong end of another shift uh, in retail, and that is the shift away from fast fashion. People are really looking uh, for something more sustainable nowadays. You see this uh, in terms of how, you know, even influencers operate online. They're pushing people uh, to, to be a bit more careful with, with constantly spending uh, on cheap clothing. And Forever 21 definitely uh, on the wrong side of that too, Julia. So uh, this is, you know, something that has been precipitating for a long time for this company. They say they are going to be able to stay in business. They, they've managed to secure some financing to help them do that. Uh, but the pressure is on to prove that they can, you know, they, they can downsize now and really, really get things back on track. Yeah, you make such great points here, Claire. This is about far more than just more people buying things over the internet rather than anything else. There's specific challenges for this brand too, which you illustrate. It's also a problem for the mall operators here too. And I do want to speak about some of these guys, Simon Property Group, Brookfield Property Partners. You know, one of their biggest tenants here, it's having a ripple effect. They're shifting the changes that we see in the underlying retail environment, having repercussions for others here too. Absolutely, Julia. This is one of the biggest tenants uh, in American malls. I think it's, it's interesting if we, we talk about the size of, uh, of Forever 21. This is kind of a, a microcosm of what we see for America's malls as well. Just too much space, too many stores, uh, too much square footage, more than is needed now for today's shopper, who, of course, uh, is shifting online. Simon Property Group has lost about a third of its value, really, in the last three years. Interestingly, a couple of years ago, they actually teamed up with another mall owner and, and stepped in to, to rescue a retailer, Aeropostale. It, it remains to be seen whether uh, they're considering doing that again in the future. But I think that is a sign of just how much uh, these mall owners need these stores. Uh, Forever 21, not, not an anchor tenant uh, as such. But, but these malls have been losing others, the likes of Sears. You know, we've seen other bankruptcies this year, Payless, Gymboree. This is something that's, uh, that, that just keeps happening. And the mall owners uh, have really got to step up their game. It's, it's, it's experiences rather than just shopping that people want from these malls. Absolutely. One of several to your point too. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that update there. And later on in the show, we'll be speaking to the CEO of Majid Al-Futim. It's here. The company owns many malls across the Middle East, across the EU and Asia, including uh, Forever 21 as well, appearing in their malls. He'll be joining us live from Dubai at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. So uh, stick around for that for now to our next driver and raising a glass to its first day of trading. Beer maker AB InBev's Asia Arm finally going public in Hong Kong. It finished over 4% higher in the first day of trade. Paul and Monica joins us now. Second time-ish, lucky. They sold off the Australian business, came back to the market, and it looks pretty successful here. Yeah, you have to think that it's a success, Julia, the fact that they were able to get this offering out and for it to go up a little bit. Keep in mind, though, that they did downsize the uh, offering. It was originally expected to sell uh, about $10 billion in stock, which would have made it the biggest IPO of the year. Instead, it's about $5 billion. It's the second biggest globally behind Uber. They also had to bring the price range down, I think, to make it more palatable to investors as well. But that aside, at least the stock did go up which is not something that can be said for a lot of unicorns in the U.S. that have been going public lately. The likes of Uber and Peloton and Smile Direct Club, which have really been more IPO no than IPO O this year. Yeah, it's interesting. For, for me, there are a couple of questions here. One, 
does this tie back to the broader questions that we're asking about private market valuations versus public and a sort of rationalization or was this business well enough known that we, we don't have to have those kind of fears and the second thing is this is good news for Hong Kong too amid 17th weekend of a protest that we just saw surely they're still managing to get listings done here yeah I think to take that latter part first, definitely very encouraging news in light of the political instability in Hong Kong right now that this offering was just able to get out in the first place. As to the question of whether or not this shows that, you know, maybe there's an appetite for companies with uh, you know solid financials. And I think it is worth noting that there's a big difference here between a large multinational conglomerate like AB InBev selling off a piece of its business and these private companies that had been, you know, given higher valuations probably than they deserve by Silicon Valley, then going out and having their day of reckoning on Wall Street. So I'm not sure it's totally apples to apples, but yes, it is true that investors obviously like profitability and big brand names. Companies like Uber, they have the latter, the brand name, the profitability, not so much and probably not anytime soon. I couldn't agree more. Apples to Asian pears in this case. No more questions. I've been told off. I've got to move on. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. There's uh, turbulence for Airbus coming, perhaps. The WTO expected to approve a record U.S. tariff here in retaliation for aircraft subsidies. Anna Stewart joins us. And Anna, you've been covering this story for a while. What can we expect in terms of the fine that we're looking at? A record potentially for the WTO here. Yeah, OK, so the broad ban for that number is expected between five and eight billion dollars. Most reports putting it at seven point five billion dollars. We'll see whether that's correct. Once we get the number, of course, the next question is, will the U.S. administration immediately announce tariffs on European goods? And what will they include? Because they already drafted up a potential list on twenty five billion dollars, so much more substantial. That included everything from French wine, Italian cheese, cashmere, you name it. I would expect any tariffs, though, of course, to have planes, plane parts, front and centre because this is about Airbus and Boeing as well, that dispute. Um, Of course, the CCO of Airbus recently told us, though, that any tariffs that are on them will end up hurting America. Take a listen. Tariffs will be a hurdle for us in the beginning. Then it'll have ripple effects on the supply chain. And uh, I'd like to point out that 40% of what we procure comes from the United States. So if Airbus is facing an impediment to doing business in the US, there will be an immediate negative uh, effect on the the US uh, aerospace industry. Not to mention the effect of higher aircraft prices on ticket prices affecting the consumer and therefore uh, the whole economic activity of this sector in the United States. He did go on to say that he thinks this is all posturing and that it will bring both sides to the negotiating table. Of course, looking at the US and China and their trade dispute, it doesn't look so good. Of course, if the EU wants to retaliate and they've got the separate Boeing ruling, that won't come till early next year. So they won't know what they can uh, potentially tariff back in retaliation. It's a, it's a long-running dispute. It could be heading up for negotiation, Julia. It could be heading up for more tit-for-tat. We really don't know at this stage, but that number between $5 and $8 billion expected shortly. Yes, and we wait and see then in eight months' time whether the WTO says that uh, Boeing has been subsidised as well and uh, that you can respond in kind. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that.
All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that, that we're following around the world. Dozens of world leaders, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, have been in Paris for the funeral of former French President Jacques Chirac. He died last week, aged 86. Far-right leader Marine Le Pen did not attend at the request of Chirac's family over the weekend. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman denies ordering the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. As a leader of Saudi Arabia, he says he takes full responsibility, though. The Washington Post journalist was brutally murdered and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Turkey a year ago. Here's what uh, bin Salman told CBS News. Did you order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? Absolutely not. This was a heinous crime. But I take full responsibility as a leader in Saudi Arabia especially since it was committed by individuals working for the Saudi government. What does that mean, that you take responsibility? When a crime is committed against a Saudi citizen by officials working for the Saudi government, as a leader I must take responsibility. This was a mistake, and I must take all actions to avoid such a thing in the future. To Hong Kong now, where protests turn violent on Sundays, the city prepares for more demonstrations on China's National Day. Some protesters threw petrol bombs as local police deployed water cannon and tear gas. These latest clashes come ahead of the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China on Tuesday. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson denies a claim he squeezed the thigh of a female journalist at a private lunch in 1999. This comes as the UK's Conservative Party meets for its annual conference and Mr Johnson hopes to deliver Brexit by the end of October. No facial expressions allowed. We're going to take a break here on First Move. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a look once again at our top story, the impeachment crisis brewing in Washington, D.C. Our next guest believes the odds of an impeachment in the House have climbed above 50 percent. Meanwhile, the probability of a China-U.S. trade deal has slipped below 50 percent. Greg Valliere joins me now. He's chief U.S. strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's start with impeachment first. A probability above 50 percent of a House impeachment. Explain why you believe that and then I'll ask you why it could be an exercise in futility here if the Senate isn't on board too. Well, I, I have to say, Julia, that the last three or four days have been devastating for the White House because there's a new element to the story, and that's a possible cover-up. You need 218 votes uh, in the House, and I think the Democrats have 215, 216. I, I think when the vote comes, probably right around Christmas, there will be the 218 in the House to impeach or indict. The words are interchangeable. As you point out, the big story is in the Senate. And the big story there, it seems, at least today, is that there simply aren't enough Republicans that are going to right. turn against the president to impeach him. So I think for an international audience, they're going, is this simply just a lot of, of sound and noise and distraction, actually, for the Democrats? And the only way to remove the president is to win an election in 2020. Well, you're absolutely right in that there's a rhetorical issue here and that people hear the word impeachment and they think that means he's out if the House right. impeaches. It's, it, this, the real story is would the Senate convict 
or acquit after a trial. I'm not even sure Mitch McConnell will allow a trial, but if there is one, I still think the odds favor acquittal uh, with Trump not being ousted. If people want him gone, they've got to vote him out. What about the Senate then here? Is there anything that may come from the whistleblower's account that could change the minds here of enough senators to make them go, you know what, actually the Republican Party, the country, is better off without the president here? You know, it's not out of the question. I think as of this morning, maybe there's three, four, five Republicans who might consider voting to convict. But I think we've got to see what the whistleblower has. Uh, are there tapes? Uh, what about Trump's meetings with Vladimir Putin and others? Is there really a cover-up? A lot of talk about a cover-up. Has there been obstruction of justice? So there are issues that could all come together to make the Senate vote closer. But as of right now, I still think the, the smart bet is that he gets acquitted in the Senate. You know, it's interesting. Public sentiment, it seems, has shifted to people looking at this and saying perhaps pushing for impeachment here is a good idea. What's the risk? And given that you're talking probabilities, how high is the probability here that this backfires on the Democrats and it backfires on Joe Biden, too, because the Republicans yeah. don't let the noise surrounding Ukraine die down? Well, Washington is a city that is addicted to the polls, and I do think that the polls will be pivotal in this entire story. Right now, over the weekend, the polls have gone up a little, people wanting maybe to at least have a, a, a hearing of all of these, these issues. But I still think the country is averse to going through the trauma of a, a long, drawn-out drawn trial. I don't think anyone wants to see that. Uh, certainly not the markets uh, for all of next year. So I, I think that the polls right now are still another reason why the Senate would probably vote to acquit. And very quickly, Greg, I have about 30 seconds. Why yep. slipping chances of a U.S.-China trade deal here now below 50 percent in your mind? Two or three things very quickly. On Friday, the White House had an absurd leak that they might try to stop U.S. companies from right. investing in China. But what a negative story that is. Hong Kong, if China has to crush the insurrection, that's not going to help the trade talks. But most importantly, the Chinese read the polls and they know that impeachment is now in the air. Might they want to wait until after the election and to see if Trump is still around? If Trump is not around, I think the Chinese might think they could get a better deal with someone else. Yeah, it's such a great point. Admittedly, Pete Navarro called that rumor fake news this morning on CNBC, right. but your broader point is very valid. Greg, fantastic to have you on, as always. Greg, Greg Vallier there. Thank you. All right. The outgoing head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, warning about the economic costs of the impeachment distraction here in D.C., but she did, I have to say, stay clear of politics. Listen to what she had to say. You know, I lived through Watergate, and I was actually working on the Hill as a little intern of a member of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, Bill Cohen. And I could see in those days how much energy, focus, brain power was actually spent on, on, on the Watergate issues. If this is going to be the same again, I can only imagine how much more energy, brain power and, uh, and, and focus there will be on those purely political issues, which will be a complete distraction from focusing on the economy, producing values, the, 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 the well-being of people. I respect what is going on and I have no opinion and no view because I'm not uh, an American. But 
from an economic point of view and from the global economic point of view, it could very well create a massive disruption and I think it would undermine the US leadership. A great interview with Richard coming up this evening on Quest Means Business. It's about her tenure at the IMF, her new role as president of the ECB. 8 o'clock London time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 9 o'clock Frankfurt. Plenty more to come in the market open next. Welcome back to First Move Live from the New York Stock Exchange here and the opening bell for the first session of the week this Monday, a slightly higher open for US markets. We were anticipating that, taking back some of the losses that we saw in Friday's session, helping us along with that, that US Treasury statement saying that there were no immediate plans to restrict access to Chinese companies listing here on US markets. When Pete Navarro was asked earlier on CNBC of any plans to delist Chinese companies that have already listed here in the United States, he called it fake news. But uh, obviously that creating some caution on Friday. We'll talk about that more in the show. But China has warned decoupling from the United States here would harm both sides. It's a message that they've reiterated often here. High level talks on those trade deal or hopes for a trade deal set to resume next week. In the session today, though, keep an eye on retailers. We were discussing earlier about Forever 21 filing for bankruptcy here in the United States, a victim of among many things here, changing consumer tastes and a shift to e-commerce. Forever 21 has a presence in malls owned by Majid Al-Futain Group, which has a huge footprint across the Middle East, Africa and Asia with shopping malls, cinemas and leisure facilities too. The company also boasts over three and a half thousand hotel rooms and the franchise for at least 280 car four supermarkets and hypermarkets across 15 different countries. And I'm glad to say our next guest is the CEO, Elaine Bajani. It's uh, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Unfortunately, Forever 21, an illustration, as I mentioned, of, of some of the challenges that your business faces with changing consumer tastes, a growing presence in e-commerce versus customers coming to shopping malls and, and shopping there. Talk to me about what you're seeing and, and how you're dealing with that. Thank you for having me. Well, effectively, there is a change in channel that's becoming more and more important. And we're seeing that customers are favoring more experience over product and price. So we are going to see this kind of situations. This is not the first time that we have a global retailer that goes into this situation. But in reality, the, uh, the, retail, the retail sector in the GCC is going to grow on to $308 billion in between now and 2023. So there is still a lot of demand, but this demand has to be has to be underlined by a very strong customer experience and, of course, a great omnichannel experience as well. You know, it's interesting when I look at, if we look at specifically the retail part of your business, how much of that and what proportion is driven by domestic spending versus tourism, which is also surely key? Well, when you look at, uh, when you look at the region, most of it is uh, domestic tourism driven and our our business across the 15 countries are prim is primarily there to cater for the local customers. This being said, markets like Dubai and the UAE primarily 
have a big uh, tourism impact, that's for sure. But this does not, does not exceed something like 15 to 20 percent, depending on the locations. Because I think a lot of people, particularly if we're, we're talking about the Middle East here, look at the, the noise level right now, the escalation in tensions between the United States and, and Iran in, in particular here. I just wonder what kind of dampening effect that's also having on, on consumer appetites and, and spending here versus the broader challenges that we've talked about, which is structural shifts here in, in retail. Well, consumer confidence had been had been uh, had been impacted negatively in the past three to four years, and I think currently the regional instability, the volatility that we're seeing globally, the trade wars and so on, are also taking a toll on consumer sentiment. But we also have to remember that the, the Middle East at large is a very young population; more than uh, more than 50% of the population is below 25 years old. The internet penetration is very high. The mobile penetration very high. So modern lifestyle is something that every customer across the countries that you operate in want and want want more and more over time so we are seeing a big shift towards modern trade and this is good news this being said we'll have to overcome a negative consumer sentiment uh, in the region we hope that in the coming year we'll see more clarity and the current tensions uh, between iran and uh, uh, and the rest of the world will actually come to basically some kind of a solution I think many would agree with you, uh, sir. I want to talk about the good news here, which is the growth regions. And you point to Saudi Arabia, you point to opportunities in, in Egypt. I want to start with the first one and, and talk mm -hmm. about what you're doing in, in Saudi Arabia in particular and the, the shift that we've seen in the last year with access now to cinemas, because I know this is something where you're ramping up investment. Talk us through what you're doing there. Absolutely. So Saudi Arabia has been on this path of liberalization, opening up the country. And I think we just heard in the past few days the new tourism, uh, to, sorry, the new visa program that will boost inbound tourism into Saudi Arabia. That's very important. So we have been, uh, we have been in Saudi Arabia for more than a decade in, in, in different businesses. But the latest, I would say, addition is uh, Vox Cinema. So we introduced our cinemas into Saudi Arabia. With the, with the lifting of the ban uh, a year and a half ago. And today we are, we are leading uh, uh, the, uh, the Saudi cinema sector and we're also developing local content. And this is something that has been extremely well received by the population. In addition, of course, with the liberalization of the women condition and basically bringing, making some historical decisions that are anywhere else in the world, I would say, the basics of, uh, of what it should be. So we're very happy that Saudi Arabia is still a great story that needs to be told. I think there is more and more efforts that are being put in order to drive this narrative. Cinemas in Saudi Arabia are doing fantastically well. There is a lot of runway for that, and we are extremely engaged uh, on that side. But if we look also across the region, Egypt is another great story. Egypt uh, is, uh, is developing well. It's growing well in the past year and a half after the after the difficult times it went through, I think the reforms in both Egypt and Saudi Arabia were extremely welcomed and they have been dealing with some structural issues to a large extent. We hope to see more of that and we're seeing that the Egyptian population is responding very well and I think Saudi Arabia is going to go better and better unless something, I would say, uh, something uh, on the geopolitics comes and, uh, and changes uh, the current narrative. 
Yeah, it's great to hear about the growth stories uh, in addition to the challenges here. So fantastic to have you on First Move this morning. And please come back and talk to us again. Uh, Alan Vijani there, the um, CEO of Majid Alfitain Group. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. To first move, the Trump administration says there are no current plans to delist Chinese companies that trade on U.S. exchanges. Three major Chinese stocks listed in New York, Alibaba, JD.com and Baidu rebounding this morning, as you can see, after plunging on Friday, where reports said that the White House was considering action to limit U.S. investment in China. Trade Trump trade advisor Pete Navarro is now slamming those reports as fake news. And more than 160 companies listed on the U.S. exchanges are Chinese with upward of $1 trillion worth of market cap. So talk of delisting put the markets on edge clearly and understandably. But my next guest says nothing imminent. So let's understand what's going on. Leyland Miller is the expert on China's financial system. He's the CEO of China's Beige Book. I tell you what, you're a lot more of an expert than that, quite frankly, but we'll move on. <laughs> Talk me through what's fact from fiction here, because for those reasons, people were cautious, but we need to understand what's going on here or not going on, more importantly. Well, as the U.S. and China have a trade war and have broader tensions that are devolving, Right now, the White House is evaluating all different types of things that will happen in a best-case scenario, worst-case scenario. Some of those are being conflated right now into being one big nuclear option against China. So you're talking about the idea of delisting Chinese companies if they don't adhere to certain regulatory standards. And then separately, you're talking about whether U.S. pension money, for instance, should be prohibited from being sent abroad to Chinese companies because you don't know what they're being dumped into. These are all questions that it's fair to evaluate. Some are very big deals and some are not so big deals. And it's all being sort of pushed into Trump White House looking to go crazy on China. And so I think it's, it's, it's worth sort of carving these things into what's, what, what's really going on. Just bad reporting, quite frankly, because we need to understand here. And we've talked about it on this show mm -hmm. a number of times. If you're simply looking at U.S. investors of whatever kind investing in Chinese companies, you want to know that those companies are following the same kind of financial systems, rules, regulations that U.S. companies are. Otherwise, you could be investing in your money's at risk. These are fair questions to be asking at this stage. That's very different from saying whoever's listed on these exchanges is suddenly going to be thrown off. That, that's exactly right. So if you're Walmart, you have to subject yourself to audits by Peekaboo. It's the public company right. accounting oversight board. And you have to adhere to certain regulatory standards. Now, if you're a Chinese firm on one of these U.S. exchanges, theoretically you have to do that. But what's happened over the past decade almost is you've had China simply say, no, no, we're not going to let you look at our books. And U.S. administrations have said, well, okay, well, we want, we want Chinese money, we want Chinese, we want Chinese capital, we want Chinese companies on our exchanges. We're just going to look the other way. And what's happening right now is people looking at this issue and saying, why in the world are we giving these Chinese companies, many of which are fraudulent, many of which are good companies, uh, but many of which are fraudulent, why are we allowing potential U.S. investors and pension pensions to be susceptible to just going down this this black hole despite the fact that it looks like they have the imprimatur of the SEC and and uh, and and the US uh, administration so it's it's uh, it's a problem how far away from actual policy 
on any of these things do you think we are? Well, there have been a number of bills that have gone through Congress. They're, 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 they're being talked about a lot right now on Capitol Hill that could put something like this into play on the delisting side in the not distant future, but then you have long phases, and then you have uh, time for a negotiation period, uh, then you have time for the enforcement to start. This would, would be years before Chinese companies would actually feel the true compulsion to move. Now, that doesn't mean that China right now isn't sweating and looking to do secondary listings in Hong Kong in order to hedge their bets, but none of this stuff is, is imminent. The, the other side of this, whether you prohibit uh, pension money from being invested abroad, much bigger deal. That is not imminent at all. It could, if you saw it a second Trump term and, and, and things devolved and trade deals off, you could go to a separate land. Right now, none of these things are going to happen. You said China's sweating. Chinese companies sweating or China itself sweating, Beijing sweating, because I can't help but feel that the Chinese government here, like, you know what, we've just opened a big tech exchange in, in Shanghai. There's Hong Kong as the option. Admittedly, there's a bit of turmoil there right now, but AB InBev's Asia unit proved you could still list there. They'd welcome those companies back with open arms, surely. Yes, yeah, some of them. So if you're Alibaba, you're, you're, they want to list in Hong Kong and they'll be able to do it. People want to invest in those companies. All of these companies, though, you've got a lot of companies that can do this. You're talking about hundreds of companies, yes. uh, Chinese companies, that would be subject to having to delist to, and, and do the expensive process of figuring out how to list somewhere else. And, and th basically, the, the champions wouldn't have a hard time with this, but a lot of the middling companies, which is most of them, would have a pretty difficult time. Because it means money. You've got Lots to have people money. willing to give you right. money as well, and mm -hmm. that's perhaps not such an easy question. Mm -hmm. Trade deal prospects? <sighs> Hurt by this? <laughs> no, because I think what everyone's realizing right now is the Trump administration wants a deal. They don't. They want. They, they would like a, a at least a baby deal going into the end of the year. Uh, but right now the Chinese are shut down for national days. So you're not having the back and forth. But the, the the amusing thing about this was when we were talking to clients on Friday, and everyone's like, "Well, is China? You know, is China going to be shut down? Is this a, an escalation?" No, because what's happening behind the scenes is actually a lot of interaction between the two sides. Right trying to get to some sort of smaller deal and, and a ramp up of ag purchases and possibly pull back on tariffs, punts on tariffs, all kinds of things. So, so this is going in a very different direction behind the scenes. When the ultimate China hawk, Pete Navarro, goes on air on a morning like this to say it's fake news, to me that tells you something too. I think they got some pushback on this. <laughs> yes. Always great to have you on the My show. Pleasure. Leila Miller, CEO of China Beige Book International. And you have a great report out, which we will get you back on to discuss, but we've dealt with that for now. All right. Well, there's not been an apparent light bulb moment just yet on the U.S.-China trade deal, but I do want to talk to you about electricity. When the lights go out, most of us simply flick a switch to restore power, but an American engineer has invented something that will make this process even faster. Behold, the digital breaker, as John Devteris reports on this week's Global Energy Challenge. Listen in. On this edition of the Global Energy Challenge, how an American company's invention can help modernize our old power systems. More than a century ago, Thomas Edison received the first patent for the circuit breaker, which was later improved by Granville Woods. Now, Atom Power in North Carolina has radically upgraded the technology for a digital age. If there's a problem on this 30 amp circuit breaker, it will trip open. And then to reclose it, you gotta go manually reclose it. It's just like a light switch. Here, this is what's coming next. A, a circuit breaker that you can remotely control through software. 
and you can actually shed load and, and manage the energy in your facility all remotely, pre-programmed. When you have a short circuit in the field, like actually at the location, it causes arc flash. It means an explosion of electrical plasma. A solid state circuit breaker like this actually opens the circuit about 3,000 times faster than circuit breakers do today. And that speed is key to ensuring that you can actually stop that arc, stop that short circuit before it actually propagates into the system. These efficiencies and safety features are key to multiple source energy distribution. If you put something like solar onto the same source as say your utility or energy storage or another renewable source, they have to sync up, which means if they don't, then you're gonna have a fire, it's gonna blow up. And what a solid state circuit breaker can do is you can bring you know, any number of renewables or feeds into the same source, the same electrical panel. At City Landmark, the Duke Energy Center, a pilot scheme is underway. Residential and commercial buildings account for 40% of America's energy consumption. The Atom Switch's ability to gather data could help reduce this. More First Move, next. Welcome back. And a look at today's boardroom brief. Africa's top smartphone maker, Transient, made its market debut in Shanghai, soaring as much as 96% before closing up 64%. So it gave back a little bit. Transient sells nearly half of all mobile phones sold in Africa. The IPO is the second largest for Shanghai's Nasdaq-style star market. Ha! We were just talking about that. Bob Iger says Disney is moving aggressively into the busy streaming market and argues there's nothing out there like his $7 a month streaming service. Christian Armapur put him on the spot and asked him, why bother? So Disney Plus, the streaming device, is set to launch in November. And there's plenty other out there, right? There's, um, there's NBC Universal, there's um, Netflix, obviously, and Amazon. Some people might say the field is a bit crowded. You may be a bit late to this. What do you hope for Disney Plus? And what do you say to, to you know, your, your chances there now? Well, it's a really interesting time in the media business today when uh, people are uh, accessing media or consuming media in many different ways than they used to, buying it and watching it. And it's important, as I mentioned earlier, I talked earlier about being relevant. It's important to be relevant, to be front and center in terms of modern, relevant platforms and basically the most advanced ways for people to access their content. So this is a, clearly a bold move, I mean an aggressive move in that direction. We have the benefit of these phenomenal brands at the company, Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, now National Geographic through our acquisition of 21st Century Fox. And so what we're doing is we're creating a service, which in the United States will be for $6.99 a month, called Disney Plus that will feature those five brands and both library product made by all of those brands from the past and original product made by those creative engines or brands. There's nothing like it out there. And you can watch the full interview on Armanpour today at 6 p.m. London time, 7 p.m. in Berlin. Now, shoot for the stars and you may land on Mars. Elon Musk's plan to colonize Mars may be closer to reality. He told our Rachel Crane it could even be as soon as next year. If the development continues to improve exponentially, then I think uh, we could 
we could be sending people to orbit before the end of next year. Mm -hmm. You know, within a year, approximately. But SpaceX hasn't put a human in space yet. How are you guys going to do this in a year? Well, we will be putting people into orbit soon. We will be transporting astronauts for NASA in probably, I don't know, three or four months to the space station. Yeah, on that point, uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine tweeted yesterday saying that yes. he was very excited about the event today, but he also said, quote, commercial crew is years behind schedule and it's time to deliver. Did you take Did you say that? commercial crew or SLS? He said commercial oh, crew. Oh, okay, jeez. I mean, <laughs> interchangeable. <laughs> no, but how do you respond to that? And did you take that as a dig? Um, well, I mean, first of all, everything in aerospace is years behind, okay? It's really a question of, relatively speaking, which one is more late. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the hardware for the high-altitude abort demonstration for Crew Dragon will be there in October. The uh, hardware for the first crewed flight um, will be there in November. Um, and so most of the work that is required from now through a flight of NASA astronauts is um, a, a long series of safety reviews. So it's, it's not really hardware related. Um, and it's really going as fast as we can make it go. If there's some way to, to make it go fast, I would make it go faster. That was quite cute. Musk says the Starship rocket will cost a lot less than initially expected. But for those of you dreaming to go to the Red Planet, your air ticket will still set you back $200,000. Get in line behind me, my friends. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.